welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your, as your new covenant people. And as we come before you as your new covenant people, we, we want to ask for the new covenant blessings. Lord, in, in Ezekiel 36, you said that you would sprinkle us clean with water, that we would be clean, and that you would cleanse us from all of our impurities and from all our idols. And so we pray, Lord, this morning that you would do that very thing, that your spirit would so wash us with the word that we would be clean in our hearts and our intentions and our desires and in the motives of our hearts in our wants, in what we love. And we pray, Lord, that you would wash away our idols. You also promise, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so, Lord, we pray for that, Lord. We pray for stony hearts to be removed and to be given fresh, living hearts that beat for you, that desire you, that love the things you love and desire the things you promise. And Father, you also promise I will put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And we just pray for that, Lord, the the gift of your spirit, that we who are trusting in Jesus Christ have already received your spirit, but we pray, Lord, that you would fill us more and more, that we would sense your spirit, who is the spirit of Jesus Christ, enlivening us to you. We pray, Lord, that we would see the fruit of the Spirit, which is Jesus' own life in us. That his life would flow through our spiritual veins. We pray, Lord, that you would do that as, as we hear your word, as we expound your word, as we dig into your word, as we enjoy your word. And Lord, we pray as we talk about this topic of suffering, which is such a, a difficult thing to talk about. And there's so many different ways in which people are suffering in this room. We pray, Lord, that you would come and you would minister individually to each one, that you would somehow multiply this for each person like you multiplied the, the bread and the, and the fish for the people that were there on that day listening to Jesus, that the bread somehow multiplied. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that with your word, that somehow there would be enough to fill every single person with some leftover. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace to us that you desire to feed your kids. 
and we're at your table, and we're ready to hear from you. And we thank you in advance for what you'll do. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're just getting started in this letter to the Philippians. It was written in 60 AD. And um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts 16, and we saw what happened 11 years before when the church was first planted. And this story is amazing. I had somebody reply to me by email when I sent it out, and they, they read Acts 16 for the first time, and they were like, this is a really amazing story, and it is amazing what happened. You know, they come to Philippi, a place where the gospel hadn't been preached before. Uh, the merchant Lydia gets saved. A slave girl gets the demon cast out of her. They throw Paul and Silas into prison, but then God sends an earthquake so that they could be set free from that, and the jailer gets saved, and it ends with the town, like, apologizing, and and Paul walking away, you know, vindicated. It's amazing. It's epic, you know? It's the way you want it to go, except with the beatings in the middle. But everything else, like, that's the way you want the story to go. Now, some 11 years later, Paul is writing from a different prison. There's a prison in Rome. He's stuck there. This time, there's no earthquake. There's no liberation. There's no vindication. And you know what Paul tells them about this imprisonment that he's experiencing in Rome now? This is what he says. He goes, this works too. You know, that was great in Acts 16, but this imprisonment thing, this works too. Take a look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has really served the advance of the gospel. Paul, like, picks up his chains and he goes, these work too. This also works. This passage, guys, teaches us that the Lord makes even our sufferings and setbacks advance the gospel. Paul's sufferings were persecution and imprisonment. We don't know whether we're going to have an opportunity to suffer in that way, and it is an opportunity. Jesus said, when they persecute you and they do all manner of evil to you, that will be your opportunity to speak of me. We don't know whether we're going to have an opportunity like Paul had in this. It would be an honor to. We should be ready for it. But I believe this principle also applies when we suffer in any way that publicly shows Christ, that publicly points to Christ is better. And I get that partly from this own letter. We can see that in the suffering of Epaphroditus. He's in chapter 2. He came to minister to Paul's needs. On the way, he gets sick. And Paul says this about Epaphroditus. He says that he, in Philippians 2.30, he nearly died for the work of Christ. A lot of times when we think of like dying for Christ, we usually think of persecution, martyrdom. He says that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. You know, not persecution, not imprisonment, but sickness. But sickness endured in a way that showed that Christ is better. That Christ is better than health and Christ is better than life itself. And so anytime we suffer in a way that shows that Christ is better than anything we are losing in this world, then the Lord advances the gospel through that. That's what this passage teaches us. Whether that suffering is like Paul, persecution, imprisonment, whether it's sickness, whether it's poverty, whether it's the loss of a relationship, whether it's the loss of a loved one. Because guys, we're all going to suffer And one of the most important things we can do here on Sunday mornings is prepare to suffer. Because we're all going to suffer. Life is full of suffering. And this text wonderfully prepares us for suffering by showing us that the gospel can be advanced if we suffer in a way that shows that Jesus is better. And, uh, And I know that runs really counter to the way we tend to think about suffering and the way we think about what glorifies God. We tend to think that it's only the great deliverances that point people to Christ, right? When the earthquake comes, when the jailer gets saved, when he repents, when the town's sorry, when we get the great job, when we get accepted into the dream college we had hoped for, 
when our relationships are fully restored, when we get vindicated in that court case, or we get miraculously healed, we think, okay, now that is going to point the world to Christ. But this passage shows us that if you suffer in a way that shows Christ is better, that actually advances the gospel too. Maybe more powerfully. Maybe more powerfully. That's what Paul saw in his imprisonment. So how could the Lord use your sufferings or setbacks to advance the gospel? Well, the same way it did for Paul. One way that your suffering could advance the gospel is by allowing you to bring Christ to someone you'd otherwise not be able to. That happened with Paul. Take a look at verse 13. He says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul assures them that his imprisonment has been working for the good of the gospel. He goes, I know this doesn't look good, and I'm not writing to you because I want your sympathy at all. Because, you know what? I met a lot of these really nice guards. Yeah, they might not necessarily have been nice. So these are the imperial guards. These are also known as the Praetorian guards. These were 9,000 really elite fighting men. They were actually stationed in Rome where he's imprisoned, and they were actually the emperor's own private security force. And the way it worked with a prisoner like him is that one of them would be continuously chained to him. Well, they're on rotation. The one guy isn't continuous. Every four hours, they switch out the guy, right? They hook another guy to him. So he's literally chained to one of these guards, which means that Paul gets an opportunity to share Christ with a lot of men on rotation, not all 9,000 certainly, but many of them who actually walk in the halls of power. Isn't that amazing? He's like, this has actually turned out great. You know, they're rotationally chained to him. You might say that Paul had like a, a captive audience, right, for his evangelism. This guy's literally chained to him. He sees Epaphroditus come, sick, ministering to his need. He hears Paul dictating this letter to whoever wrote it down for him. I mean, they're there hearing everything, right? You guys remember last year when we finished up Romans? Romans was written three years before this, and at the end of Romans, there's all Paul's lovely plans to come, right? He's like, I'm going to come to you guys. It's going to be great. We're going to hang out. You're going to send me off to Spain. It's going to be wonderful. It didn't work out like he thought. You know, on the one hand, he got to come at Rome's expense, right, as a prisoner. But on the other hand, he wasn't able to minister in the marketplaces and the synagogues like he normally could. Anybody that was going to hear him teach had to come visit him, which they did. But if Paul's plans had worked out the way he wanted them to, he never would have been sharing Christ with the imperial guards. He never would have been sharing Christ with people who walk in the palace. Isn't that amazing? Paul sees this, and he's like, this works too. You know, maybe this works better. Isn't that amazing to have that perspective on your suffering? Guys, the Lord will use your suffering as well. The Lord will bring you in touch with people you'd never meet otherwise. Maybe your suffering will bring you in touch with a doctor you wouldn't have met, or an ICU nurse you wouldn't have met, or a lawyer you wouldn't have met, or a prison guard like Paul, perhaps. People you never would have been able to minister otherwise, but your suffering has brought you right next to them. That's the way Paul looks at it. Some of you guys will remember Elena. She's like a wonderful older woman that came with the Thompsons. She was with us for quite some time. You probably would remember her when we were back at uh, Impact. And in her latter years, she passed away about a year ago. And in her latter years, she was dealing with failing kidneys. And so she had to go to dialysis multiple times a week. And she kept on asking me for the, the little Luke books, remember, that we had? They were like the Gospel of Luke by itself. She kept asking me for these. And, you know, she would kind of, like, be really 
firm about it, you know? Like, I need more of those, okay? And do you know why? It's because she would bring them with her to dialysis. And she'd share Christ with the other patients there and the nurses and stuff like that. She used that as an opportunity, just like Paul. She had a captive audience, right? Sharing Christ. Not only will suffering bring you into closer contact with people you wouldn't have been able to otherwise, but your suffering actually gives you a, like a credibility with people that you don't have when you're not suffering. We see that in verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Literally, it says, in the Greek, it says, my chains are in Christ. My chains are in Christ. And as he's there, chained to these guards, the guards came to see that Paul wasn't there for criminal reasons, and he wasn't there for political reasons. He was there because he was in Christ. Those chains were actually not a symbol of Rome's power. They were a symbol of Christ's power over his life. And the guards, they must have been scratching their heads because as they find out more about Paul, they're like, this is a really educated guy. And then they find out a little bit more, and they're like, this guy's a Roman citizen. What's going on here? What's this very educated person who's a Roman citizen doing chained to us? You know, and, and he's saying that he's chained to us for Christ. Like, who is this Christ, you know? And he's persuading us to follow him. Like, Paul's life there, being chained for Christ, demanded an explanation. And Paul gave him an explanation, right? He gave him for a reason for the hope within him. And many listened, and they got saved. And we know that from the end of the letter. The letter ends this way. It's kind of a mic drop kind of moment. Paul says at the end, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Isn't that great? You know that people that are within Caesar's own household are coming to Christ because of his chains. It's amazing. Your suffering will give you credibility to speak with the lost about Christ. Some of you, I know definitely some of you remember my cousin Emily, Emily DeBoard. She passed away several years ago. She was a school teacher. She passed away only in her 30s. Emily always had a relentless joy in Christ. It's just relentless. Actually, I tell you a side story about her that's super funny, but it has nothing to do with the sermon, which is that um, Josh's cul-de-sac has a mirroring cul-de-sac right next to it. So you go down the road, there's a cul-de-sac here, there's a cul-de-sac here. They look exactly the same. Maybe it's like that in your neighborhood. So one night we were having a study. This was a long time ago, I think before we even started the church. Emily comes, she's running a little late, she pulls in, she goes, oh, there's not really anybody here. She goes inside, she sits down on the sofa, and some people come in, and she's like, hey, where's Josh? And they're like, and she realized she's in the wrong house. She was like so excited, you know? She's so awesome. So anyway, she had this relentless joy in Christ. But it, it wasn't until the cancer, though, she, so she got adrenal cancer. It wasn't until the cancer, though, that that her joy needed an explanation. <laughs> and her whole school came to see that her hope was in Christ. I mean, it was a big deal. Like, everybody knew about her. Everybody was praying for her. Everybody was hearing her testimony. You know, the way she joyfully suffered for Christ gave her testimony, like, a new credibility, you know? People were ready to listen. Even her own mom ended up getting saved through that whole thing. Guys, your suffering gives you a credibility to speak to the lost, about Christ. You know, this is another place where the prosperity gospel is so wrong, okay? It's so wrong on all levels, but on this level, the prosperity gospel is totally wrong about what gets the attention of the lost. The prosperity gospel believes that earthly blessings that Christians receive will attract people to Jesus, 
as we show them that we never get sick or that we're healthy and we're wealthy and all these things, that somehow people are going to like, oh, I need to hear about your Jesus, right? It gets it so wrong. Let me ask you this. Which is more persuasive and surprising? The prosperity gospel person that says, I love God because he's done so much good for me. Have you seen my car? Have you seen this bling? Do you know I never get sick or poor because my God is so good? Or, like Emily, or like so many of you in suffering, I love, I love God because he's so good to me, even in the loss of my family and my health and all my possessions. He gives me a joy that is so deep I can't explain it. Which one needs more of an explanation? Guys, the smile of the prosperity gospel preacher is totally understandable to the world. We see your car. We see why you're smiling. Makes total sense. Guys, every prosperity, you know, lifestyle investment YouTuber can do that, right? But guys, Emily's smile demanded an explanation. That demanded an explanation. Her smile told the world that Jesus is better than anything the world has to offer, that he's better than health, he's better than wealth, and he's better than life itself. Amen? And as we look at Paul and we look at what's going on with him and as all these brothers and sisters that have gone before us, I just want to say to you, don't be afraid to suffer. <laughs> like I've spent so much of my life being afraid to suffer. Don't be afraid to suffer. Your joy in Christ as you suffer, it's like a passport to share Christ with others. It gives you both access and credibility. And I just want to say, when your time comes to suffer, make sure you get that passport stamped all along the way, right? All along the way. Your joy in suffering also makes the rest of us less fearful to suffer. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That might seem counterintuitive, right? Is it surprising that Paul's imprisonment makes the others more confident to speak the word boldly with fear? I mean, imprisonment and stuff like that, it's meant to be a deterrent. Like, don't do this or this will happen to you. But look, the opposite happens, right? And we know that this is the case, though, guys, don't we? We know that when we see other believers and they suffer well for Christ and they suffer with joy, it makes us a lot less fearful to do the same. When we see others enduring suffering with joy, it emboldens us to suffer well ourselves. The brothers and sisters he's talking about are the other brothers and sisters in Rome. He's not talking about the Philippians. He's telling the Philippians about the brothers and sisters who are in Rome and that they become more bold. And they had good reason, guys, to be very afraid to speak of Christ. This is 60 AD. Do you guys know who the emperor is? The emperor is Nero. They're in Nero's backyard, right? Nero was incredibly cruel. Nero was theatrically cruel. He thought he was an actor. He loved acting. He loved having play, putting on plays. And so his violence and his cruelty was theatrical. Think of the Joaquin Phoenix version of the Joker. Like, he did cruelty to entertain, to shock. He liked to do it artistically. Nero liked surprising his party guests by using Christians as human torches in his garden. He liked to see the look on people's face at how cruel he could be. He was theatrically cruel. Paul wrote this a couple of years before the great fire that consumed Rome, and Nero blamed it on the Christians, and just a horrendous persecution happened. So these Roman brothers and sisters in 60 AD, they needed really good reasons for boldness, and they found it in Paul's testimony. When they saw Paul's courage and his joy suffering in prison, it says in verse 14, it says that they became much more confident in the Lord. 
they had more of an assurance that they could trust the Lord. They had more of an assurance that the Lord would be there for them. They had more of an assurance that the Lord would sustain them in suffering. And we see others being strengthened by Christ in their suffering. It makes us much more convinced that we could do the same. This happened during the Reformation. In the 16th century in England, the Reformation was just gaining steam. And then the Roman Catholic Queen Mary I, who is Mary Queen of Scots, also known as Bloody Mary, came into power. And she thought she could stop the Reformation through a reign of terror, that she could stop the gospel spread. But we can see in this text it doesn't work that way, right? You go and do stuff like that, and what happens? It grows, right? It grows. And that's what happened in Oxford in 1555. The reformers Hugh Latimer and and Nicholas Ridley were being burned at the stake for their faithful witness for Christ. And as the fire is being lit under Latimer, he shouts out to, to Ridley, and he says this. They're both about to get burned. He says, Be of good courage, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Isn't that amazing? And that's what happened, right? Their death led to the courage of generations of reformers so that the gospel spread. And we get emboldened too, don't we? How many of you guys read missionary biographies? Okay, now, you, the rest of you are going to raise hands now. Who needs to repent and start reading missionary biographies? Okay, good, good, perfect, then we will. You know, missionaries like Jim Elliott, right, dies bringing the gospel to Ecuador, famously said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or perhaps a little closer to home is uh, David Pallison. And David Pallison, a few years, died of pancreatic cancer. I realize a lot of people are dying in this message, okay? But I think these things are so inspiring. You know, I think you could say, like, wow, that was a bummer message. I don't think this is a bummer at all. This is exactly what I need. You know what I mean? And I'm like, wow, that was a sad message. It's like, no, that was a message that is steeling me against future suffering in a way that I'm not going to be afraid anymore. Okay, so David Pallison. Uh, if you guys haven't read David Pallison, also repent. Wonderful biblical counselor. Read anything you can find by him. But when he faced pancreatic cancer a few years ago, he faced the same questions we do. And the questions are this. Why me? Why this? Why now? right? Those are the typical questions. And this is what David Pallison came to see on the questions of why me, why this, why now? He said this, why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way my faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If my suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? If I have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, If he sanctifies to me my deepest distress, if I have no fear of evil, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates the power of God to save us from all wrong, if my honest struggles show other strugglers how to land on their feet, if my life becomes a source of hope for others, why not me? If I will display faith to a faithless world, hope to a hopeless world, love to a loveless world, life to a dying world, If all that God promises only come true, then why not me? Amen? As your joy in suffering makes the rest of us much less fearful to suffer for Christ. Whether that suffering is sickness, pain, poverty, hardship, and you stay faithful and keep your joy in Christ, you show that Christ indeed is enough. And we need to see that from you. 
Your suffering in Christ and joy showing us Christ is enough is a gift to all of us. It's one of the beautiful things about being a body together. You guys realize if you live your Christian life, if you try to live it all by yourself, you will spare yourself a lot of pain, for sure. Because when you get joined to all these people, you get joined to a lot of suffering. You know? If you play it safe, you just stay with your little family, you're going to endure lots of suffering too. You unite yourself with 150 other people, right? You're going to invite a lot of pain. But you know what else you're going to get? You're going to get to see that Christ is better, right? You're going to get to see over and over again that Christ is better than anything we lose. When in the midst of your suffering, you say like Paul, could you say this like Paul, or we hear each other say this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what you end up doing is you make us much more confident in the Lord to serve him without fear. Your life shows us it's possible. Like Paul's suffering, your suffering brings you people you otherwise couldn't bring the gospel to. It emboldens others to share Christ as well. And what's really amazing about this, and I think this is what verse 15 is about, is that this gospel multiplication through your suffering can't be stopped no matter how messy the circumstances. That's what Paul's bringing up in verse 15. He brings up a potential problem. Check it out, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. So Paul's stuck in prison. The other people are free. They're preaching the gospel. Some of these people preaching the gospel are great. They're great brothers and sisters. He says they're out there. They're filling in the need because he's not out there. They're preaching, it says, out of goodwill and love and sincerity and truth, right? Great people. Other people, not great people, right? They're preaching out of envy, competition, selfishness, and insincerity. And Paul says they're mean liars, basically. <laughs> okay? And what's fascinating about this is these people that I just mentioned, are actual Christians. I know that because verse 15, when it says some, that some of them connects back to verse 14, brothers and sisters. So these envious, competitive, insincere, mean liars are actual Christians. And they're giving the actual gospel. That's why he rejoices. So they're actual Christians giving the actual gospel. They aren't wolves in sheep's clothing. They aren't pseudo-Christians. They're real believers bringing the real gospel with terrible motives. I know you guys are shocked, like this could never happen. It could never happen here, right? Yeah, we've never seen this. This happens because the gospel is powerful, and there are some people, believers included, whose idol is power and influence. And so preaching the gospel is something that's attractive because it gives them power and influence, right? And these ones had it out for Paul. Look at verse 17. He says, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He literally means like thinking to add pressure to my chains. They're out there doing this. You think like, how could this work? They might be saying something like this. Hey, Paul, you've got to see what God's doing in my ministry in the streets of Rome. I mean, it's incredible. Oh, that's right. You're locked up, aren't you? Well, people are getting saved like crazy out here. It's too bad your ministry is so short-lived. It really looks like you got your wings clipped, didn't you? You know, maybe, maybe if you ever get out of those chains, maybe you could try doing it our way, and maybe God would actually bless your ministry. It was so short, right? 
that kind of a thing. They're rejoicing in what's going on, and they're like, doesn't this hurt? But Paul's like, it actually doesn't hurt. Look at how he responds to their taunt. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's perfectly at peace knowing that the gospel can be advanced even through people like this. And you're like, well, how, how could that work? How could you have people like that, you know, and the gospel's advancing through them? And it's because the power to save is in the gospel, not the minister. It should be a comfort to all of us, right? Because we're all pretty jacked up. We look at that list and we go, yeah, sometimes me too, you know, right? But the power's in the gospel. Peter said that the gospel is like a powerful seed. The seed just needs to be spread. And the spirit causes the growth, no matter how the seed is scattered. You guys know that there are certain plants whose seeds are only scattered through the poop of animals? You guys realize this? Yeah, you do. So any, any plant that has a berry or a fruit, the whole point is that some animal is going to eat it out of their own self-interest and poop it out somewhere else, and it's going to grow. And that's how it's intended to happen, right? That's what's happening with these envious, competitive, selfish, insincere, mean liars right? Their ministry is all self-interest. They're like a coyote that found some berries and ate it and then inadvertently transferred the, the seed of the gospel somewhere else, and it grew nonetheless. And that's all Paul cares about, right? Right? That's all he cares about. It's tough to get there, though, isn't it? Isn't that a tough place to get to? I mean, to rejoice in the success of another ministry, especially when those people hurt you, right? And in this case, they intentionally hurt him, they're trying to make his chains heavy, but they don't afflict Paul because Paul, in his imprisonment, all he cares about is the joy in spreading the gospel. Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. You see what Paul did here? What he did is he, he tied his joy to the advance of the gospel so that he's wonderfully unaffected by what happens to him. You know, he sees the gospel spread, he sees the kingdom grow, and he's wonderfully unaffected by what happens to him. Remember John the Baptist? People start following Jesus, and his disciples are like, hey, we need to step up our game. We need to compete with this guy. And John the Baptist is like, no, this is great. You know, gospel's spreading. He must increase, I must decrease. He's wonderfully unaffected by what happens to him. Put it another way, Paul is so invested in the kingdom of God that he doesn't much care what happens to his own kingdom. Isn't that awesome? Do you want to be there? He's wonderfully disinterested with his own kingdom because he's obsessed with the kingdom of God. A kingdom that can't be stopped. How about you? Do you have that kind of liberating disregard for your own kingdom? Do you have a liberating disregard for your own kingdom? Because here's the deal. If you tie your joy to Christ, that is the only way you can truly be free. Right? If your joy is in, it depends on your circumstances. If your joy depends on protecting your possessions, your security, your name, your success, your comfort, you will always be in chains. You know, whatever you find your ultimate joy in besides Christ, that will build your prison. Can't you see that? Like, the reason your joy is so fragile is because you've tied it to things you can lose. You've tied it to things you will lose. You will lose everything. You will. All these things we desperately tie our joy to, we are going to lose them all on the way to death. But look at Paul. Here he is. <laughs> He's in physical chains, he's in prison, he's lost all comfort, security, success, and his joys in Christ, and he's totally free. You want to be like that? Totally free. 
You can do that too if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you put your full hope in him. I think we should think too about how frustrating and disappointing this must have been for Satan. Don't you think he's a little frustrated by this? Yeah. We're not doing the Rolling Stones sympathy for the devil thing right here, don't worry. But it must have been frustrating and disappointing for him, right? I mean, here he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll lock Paul up, and that'll end this. Nope, <laughs> made it much worse. It's like, like if you go by and you kick a dandelion and you spread the seed of the gospel everywhere. But this wasn't Satan's worst miscalculation, right? His worst miscalculation was at the cross. Guys, we can be confident that God will work all our sufferings and setbacks for the advance of the gospel because the gospel message itself is about how the greatest evil in history was turned for the glory of God and our everlasting happiness. Like, that's what the gospel is. It's a message of this insanely amazing reversal that the worst evil in history was turned for God's glory and our everlasting good. The greatest suffering turned for our advantage. You know, after Satan had filled Jesus' close friend to betray him and incited the religious leaders against him and tempted Pilate to cowardice and provoked the crowds to madness and stirred the sadistic soldiers to, to pin him to that cross, Satan must have thought, well, oh, that should put an end to that, right? Until that following Sunday morning, that third day when Jesus' body began to stir, this could be a problem. And then he got up and he walked right out, <laughs> showing that Jesus' defeat, is what it looked like, was actually his greatest victory. And this morning, I think Jesus wants you to hear this, what Paul said in verse 12. He wants you to hear this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me on the cross has really served the advance of the gospel. <laughs> like, we won again, you know? Through the cross, Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death, and now he offers to everyone here full forgiveness and eternal life, if you'll just have him. If you'll just turn from those things you're tying your joy to, things you will absolutely lose, right? Like Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This morning we can have, you can have your joy in Christ for eternity. And in this, even in our sufferings, we will rejoice. Yes, we will rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, so you're amazing, that's the bottom line, is you're amazing, doing amazing things all the time. And we just thank you for that. And thank you for all the times that you have taken what is evil and turned it for good. Over and over and over again. In the life of Joseph, you did it. You did it with Haman when he was hung on his own gallows. You did it most magnificently at the cross. You did it in the life of Paul and in the early church. And Lord, you do it again and again in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, as we encounter sufferings of various kinds, we just pray that we could count it all joy, knowing that you're doing something great again. You must be doing something great again. Father, we know that you are more than willing to spare us of un any unnecessary suffering. And so whatever comes our way must be necessary. And you must be up to something wonderful. We pray, Lord, that we would trust you. I pray for those who are here that are in crushing suffering right now. That they feel in chains. 
I pray, Lord, you give them a glimpse of the eternal victory that you have for them. I pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would strengthen us, that this would be a true feeding on the spiritual presence of Christ, that this would be a filling that would feed and enliven and strengthen our hope, would feed our joy, that would give us a deep sense of peace and filling. Lord, we pray that as you have fed us with your word, that you would feed us at your table. And we pray, Lord, that we'd leave this place stronger, that we'd leave this place changed. That we'd leave this place wonderfully unaffected by what happens to our own kingdom, knowing that your kingdom is unstoppable. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.